Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The artwork of Michael Eckblatt involves many forms of experience, from photography and film to installation to performance. Later this hour, we'll hear about his fascinating short film, Liberation Energy, now screening on the front window of Core Dance Studio in the Decatur Square. The Jewish Festival of Lights, Hanukkah begins Sunday evening, and we'll begin with a new children's story about the meaning of the holiday. The season had arrived, everything touched with snow, What would happen that winter, I just could not know. I felt a bit lonely. All my friends had an elf. But when I looked in my room, there was nothing on my shelf. So begins the story of Hanukkah Veronica, the mitzvah fairy. The book is part of a series called The Bonta Friends, written by Wendy Brandt and Julianne Cooper, with illustrations by Giovanni Lombardi. The authors join me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. On behalf of myself and Julianne, we are both honored to be here. It really is very exciting for us. It's really our first year launching our first book, and we, we just have so much gratitude for everyone that's been supporting us and everyone that's excited to hear our story. So thank you. Thank you. Please tell us why you created the Bonta Friends series. Years ago, my daughter, Lucy, came home upset from school because everyone in her class had an elf. And I guess that's how they opened up the morning class. And she said, Mommy, can I have an elf? And I said, well, darling, we're Jewish. We don't do elves. And she was pretty sad, so I decided I would fix it. So being an artist, I went to my sewing room and pulled out a bunch of things and created Hanukkah Veronica, the mitzvah fairy, so that she would have a special holiday companion as well. And unlike the other that created mischief, I used the opportunity to teach her to do mitzvahs, which are kind deeds for other people. Kind of came a holiday tradition in our family where Hanukkah Veronica performed mitzvahs 
And then the kids were encouraged to perform mitzvahs for others. Simple things like cookies being baked for them when they got home from school. My sons would, and we kept track of them a little. My sons would take in the elderly neighbor's garbage cans for them. Simple things like that. So, and it was also a great way for Lucy to go to school that holiday season and share a little bit of her holiday with her classmates who didn't know anything about Hanukkah and the Jewish religion. So it was just a perfect fit. And it made her feel special to have something that was uniquely hers. And the Bonta Friends series? So what happened was Julianne and I had been friends at our real estate office where we worked. And one holiday party, she gave me a watercolor print that she painted of a picture I took in Europe. And we became better friends because of that mitzvah. And she started to tell me this story about Hanukkah Veronica. And I grew up as a Jewish girl and just remembered how much I would have loved to have had a character like this. You know, we really at the time had no named characters. There was nothing that was kind of enchanting or magical or anything that that we could really have. And when I heard the story, I said to Julianne, I really think everyone would love a Hanukkah Veronica and would she mind if we kind of partnered and brought her to life and Julian was really excited about it because she was telling me she'd always wanted to do a book about it or, or something like that so when we came up with this it was 2020 and it was a very difficult time it was COVID that was part of the reason we had time to start it because nobody could travel or go anywhere and there were no events so we we're all sitting in our homes it was the perfect time to launch a book so what happened was I really felt that I wanted to see characters from every holiday. I wanted to use this as an opportunity to kind of bring the world together and send our children a message of joy and love because with all the hysteria surrounding the pandemic and just all the social difficulties at that moment, our children were not getting that message that, that most people really appreciate other cultures. Most people love to travel. Most people just kind of embrace different traditions and want to learn about them. And that was the message I really wanted to share with everybody. How do you ensure that the diverse holidays covered in this series are respectful and authentic to tradition? So I was born Jewish. However, even being born Jewish, the Hanukkah Veronica series and all of the other future series, they have a history section in the back. So the story in the beginning is there, but in the end of the book, you have the symbols, what they meant, how the holiday started. So it's extremely important to me that we're very authentic and that we involve people that are of that culture in order to be sure that everything that we're doing is accurate. So when we did Hanukkah Veronica, Rabbi Levi Mentz from the Chabad in Forsyth County, he was the one who assisted us with that book. So we had a rabbi by our side, um, a wonderful rabbi at the Chabad being built in Forsyth. And he helped us along the way, making sure that everything was correct, making sure the history section was accurate, adding to the history section. And that was an incredible blessing. And then we are honored by working with a Halloween expert who's written many, many Halloween books for the his history section of 
the Halloween Hannah, which is the second book, which will come out next year. So I'm not going to say her name. Uh, it will be announced soon. But we are actually working with a very, very well-known, nationally known, if not internationally, author, Halloween historian, if you will, in order to be sure that that book is accurate. So we very much respect the in their own words or the voice of the people kind of approach to all of these books. Obviously, a Jewish girl is, you know, to write Diwali Deepa without working with somebody from India that celebrates Diwali and has for years wouldn't be appropriate. So we definitely want to embrace that part of it and working with people from those cultures to be sure everything is historically accurate and represents a culture in a way that those people that actually are from the culture would be proud of. We want to make a book that really celebrates them correctly. And you cannot do that without the collaboration of someone from that culture. Absolutely. So, so far we've covered Hanukkah, Halloween, and Diwali. What other celebrations and cultures are planned for the Bont of Friends series? So in terms of the imagery of the character, we've released the first five so people can at least see them, which is Kwanzaa, Keisha. Diwali Deepa, Christmas Chloe, Hanukkah Veronica, and Halloween Hannah. Obviously, there's many other holidays all over the world, and we intend to keep adding to the series and adding characters and touching upon all the different cultures all over the world as we grow. What does Banta mean? B-O-N-T-A. This is the Banta Friends series. So Banta is actually the Italian word for kindness. And I loved the idea of calling the series The Bond of Friends because our Italian artist is so fabulous and we are so grateful for him. And he lives in a city in Italy and we wanted to celebrate him. So I thought that the word Bonta was a charming word, but it's also a nod, obviously, to the concept of kindness, which the series promotes, as well as a nod to his heritage. Oh, lovely. And I should add, the illustrations are terrific by Giovanni Lombardi. We were really blessed to to be working with him. We just absolutely adore him. And Julianne, why don't you jump in for a second as well? Because Julianne, in her own right, is an incredible artist. She does watercolor and oil. And Julianne's contributions to the imagery have just been incredible. Giovanni's work is amazing he you know if we decide we want to change a scene or something he's able to twist it turn it and get it back to us especially with Hanukkah Veronica when we were first creating the first book he was just amazing the vividness of the characters the shapes and things we sent him a photograph of my family when the children were younger celebrating Hanukkah. And in the book, there's a picture of Lucy's family celebrating Hanukkah, including the doll. Giovanni took this from my photograph and created, and the the characters look just like my family did. It just tickles me to death to (laughs) have it so wonderfully done. Oh, that is lovely. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes discussing the children's book, Hanukkah Veronica, the Mitzvah Fairy, with co-authors Julianne Cooper and Wendy Brandt. 
So Hanukkah, the first book in the series, is about the Jewish festival of lights. And from the very opening, you address the exclusion a child can feel about not being part of a wider cultural tradition, in this case, Christmas. How does Lucy, the main character, learn to feel proud of her own heritage during the Christmas season? So Lucy takes the doll and decides that that's something special that's uniquely hers. And she's able to take it. And the story, she doesn't take it to school, but she took it to school when she was little, which gave her the opportunity to share that she had a different religion, that she was Jewish and what it meant and what their, our celebration was all about. So it is my hope that, and, and she became so proud of the fact that she was unique and different, not that she wanted to fit in, which, you know, all kids want to fit in at that age, between five and six or any, any age, but it gave her something to be proud of because she was unique and different. And it gave her a great way to share the message of Judaism with people who knew nothing about the Jewish culture or the religion. And that's what we hope to accomplish with the books is that the exposure at a kid level that these kids will have to Diwali and to Hanukkah and the other holidays, they'll go, oh, I know something about that. That's just, you know, neat versus going, oh, because you fear what you don't know. So, and it's a good lesson for adults as well. Speaking of lessons, in addition to the specific joys of festive Hanukkah traditions, Lucy also discovers a moral lesson. What does she learn about kindness? Lucy discovers that kindness is not only to benefit others, but it benefits her as well. Doing a kind act for someone can make your day. I'm curious, how does Lucy demonstrate that in the story? Well, I think what's so incredible to me about this particular way that Julianne did this was it wasn't just that she created a magical character, a named magical character, which is, it brings enchantment and joy and the element of surprise into the child's life. But she did it in a way where it wasn't focused on the materialism of just gift giving per se. So, you know, the mitzvahs and teaching children about mitzvahs, about that very important part of the Jewish religion and the important part of life is that the real joy comes from giving back. So, you know, when you come home and you see fresh baked cookies on the counter and or just a little note on your bed from your parents telling you, well, from Monica Veronica, telling you how you know, great you're doing in school or something, when you have these little surprises, and we all know how much it can mean, you know, how much it can brighten your day, if you're going through a hard time, or, or just on a regular day, just to get a note from a friend or, or something like that, how that makes you feel. And I think that it really, it, it's an easy way to teach children the value of that. And within the story, you know, Lucy, 
learns the value of a mitzvah, feels what it feels like to be on the receiving end of a mitzvah, and then decides that she wants to make other people feel that way too. So she starts to do mitzvahs of her own. So, you know, when Julianne told me about this, I just thought that the whole thing was so different and so interactive. And in the back of the book, there's actually a mitzvah kit. And when children have the book, there's an envelope in the back. It has an art print that says the magic of mitzvahs. What will you do today? So it also has three fabric hearts because when Hanukkah Veronica flies around and does mitzvahs, little hearts are left behind. So in the story, if you see fresh baked cookies out, you'll know they're from her because she leaves little hearts behind wherever she goes. So in, in the real book, when they get to the back, it encourages the children to start thinking about what they can do for others, not so much making a list of what they want, right? What can they do for other people today? And that magic of mitzvahs art print is meant to be hung in the home or, or placed in their room. And the little hearts, they can, you know, bake cookies for someone or they could clean up their room without being asked. And then they've got their little fabric hearts to remind them of, of, of being, uh, you know, doing good deeds and doing mitzvahs. The other thing to share is we are incredibly lucky to be having a character appear. And again, this is just really our first year. And we have a live character appearing in various cities around the country and in Montreal. And when the children come and see that character, they're not meant to go tell the character what they want. They're meant to go tell Hanukkah Veronica what they plan to give. Who are they going to surprise this year? How are they going to help their parents? Because we all know, and you know, Julianne and I are both mothers, and we know how much it would mean to get a little note of support from your child, you know, to their parents, or to come home and have the kitchen cleaned up without having to ask. <laughs> and that's also special for everybody. And, and that's what they're supposed to be telling Hanukkah Veronica when they see her and they take a picture with her. Co-authors Wendy Brandt and Julianne Cooper. More information about Hanukkah Veronica, the mitzvah fairy, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll talk with the filmmaker behind Liberation Energy, screening at Core Dance Studio through the end of the year. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Core Dance Studio in Decatur 
has been engaging the community in new ways since beginning their real art film series screening. That's R-E-E-L on the studio's storefront windows. A new contribution by Brooklyn-based artist Michael Eckblad is on public view, projected on the front windows of Core Dance in the Decatur Square through December 31st. The short film is titled Liberation Energy, and the artist joins me now via Zoom. Michael, welcome to City Lights. Thanks so much for having me, Lois. How did you come into contact with Core Dance? It was through some chance meetings. Sue Schrader of Core Dance, uh, I guess when she took a lead role in curating what was going to be presented, she reached out to a, a former professor of mine who, who I also make films with from time to time. So it was actually through uh, his familiarity with the dance world that I first met Sue. And after making the work, this professor's name is Douglas Rosenberg, and he's a professor of art at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is my alma mater for undergrad. And so I met Sue, and, and then she invited me to make my own film. Wonderful. Great school. My brother went to Wisconsin many decades ago and still goes up there, contributes. I don't know anyone who went to school in Madison who didn't love it. (laughs) <laughs> it's a it's a great school, agreed. Your artwork involves many forms of experience, from photography and film to installation to performance. Would you tell us about your background as an artist? Uh, sure. Well, I think we could credit Douglas Rosenberg, the professor we just mentioned, with really introducing me into the art world. And he's somebody who came from the West Coast growing up in the 60s and 70s, which is a really important place for conceptual art making. A lot of the people that moved the conceptual discussion forward were out on the West Coast. And so as a child and as a teenager, creativity, at least in the visual arts, was nothing that was emphasized let's say my by my community, meaning my communities weren't really engaged in that kind of discourse. It wasn't until I went to college and saw what conceptual artists had, had done decades earlier where I, I realized that art could be anything. And I think if you were to kind of distill my art background, it would be that moment where I realized art what art was for me because it could be anything. Hmm. You seem to operate in and between broad categories of art. That fits what you just said. The pieces you produce engage the senses, involve multiple mediums, and draw viewers in almost as participants, such as your set and performance piece from a few years ago, HRI, Unpaid Internship. (laughs) simulated an office cubicle life. I love that. (laughs) What motivates you to create experiences beyond displaying images? Oh, yeah. Okay. 
So I guess I'd like to do kind of a deep nerd dive, Lois, for just a moment. I know deep that nerd dive away. I love this. <laughs> I love the idea of a deep nerd dive. This is public radio, Michael. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I think you know when when artists are searching for language to to encapsulate their work or their direction, there's this tendency to to use very you know specific or almost gnostic language and and to kind of break that up. I just was really searching for language that could explain not only like my motivations in making artwork, but my process and also what someone I think can reasonably expect from the experience. And there's really two kind of core guiding principles I have when creating work. Usually because it's conceptual work, it's interested in addressing a subject. And as you pointed out, I'm not tied to any particular medium. And so I, I just really try and think of what the sort of broad scope of the project's going to be and then allow it to unfold from there. And the two guiding principles, one is something I call ontological resonance, which is really just considering that there are certain things that paradigms, discussions, ideas, language, ex uh, experiences that activate our shared experience in such a way where we can say almost definitively that we're engaging what it means to be. And that's a super tall task. And, and obviously that I'm not claiming to have accomplished that per se, but it's something that I look towards about how to achieve this resonance. And then the second thing is layers of access. And it's funny because we're talking about the art world and a lot of times there's this idea of like preferred access for special people and people with money. And I'm really interested in layered access as the various experiences people already bring to the artwork that give them a unique experience. And so, you know, referring to HRI unpaid internship, which is, which is all about giving somebody a five to 10 minute experience as an unpaid intern in a kind of cubicle environment. You know, obviously some people have been unpaid interns, other people maybe hire unpaid interns, and we're not you know, we're not trying to dictate what somebody's experience should be going through that, but we're we're tapping into the, the broad cultural paradigm of an unpaid internship. And then when I think of liberation energy, which is really centered around this discussion of hydrogen, that similarly, you know, people have a variety of technical awareness with what hydrogen is or energy or infrastructure. But I really hope that the film incentivizes or engages people regardless of what experience they bring to that. I hope this doesn't count as a spoiler for the film. You mentioned hydrogen. The film ends with a stunning telescope image of the sun, followed by the end title card accompanied by the word hydrogen. What is the meaning of the sun in liberation energy and the significance of hydrogen? Oh, great question. So I care very deeply about the fabrics of society that make our world possible because they, they both tell us about our world and they're also subject to change. And in the case of energy policy, as we know, there's just a massive conversation that's been happening for a long time. And as we look towards alternative energy sources, the use of hydrogen is, is becoming increasingly important. And I think that if you pay attention to the way in which the, the sort of discussion around clean energy has unfolded for decades now, it's very clear that there's people who will financially lose 
if renewable energy becomes, you know, play, plays a larger and larger share of, of our energy footprint. And hydrogen has become a, a sort of big boogeyman in the entire conversation. I would say, you know, when I randomly, like a random poll of people I talk to about this project, I say hydrogen, what's the first word that you say? Can we try this, Lois? I say hydrogen and you say what? Peroxide. Oh, okay. That's a new one. Hydrogen peroxide. <laughs> Great. Well, I, you know, I thought about bomb second, but ooh, who wants to say bomb after hydrogen? Exactly. Bomb. And then I would say the third would be the Hindenburg. Yes. And, and people typically have a visual of the Hindenburg. So one of the, I'm a student of history, one of the great things about this, making this work in 2022 is they have just discovered that the cause of the fire on the Hindenburg was actually static electricity and a highly flammable paint on the outside that basically caused the fire on the outside. And then once it spread far enough, of course, the hydrogen caught fire and then the Hindenburg went down. But that perception of danger in relation to hydrogen is such a, a thing, such a problem and everybody who has a car drives around with gallons and gallons of a highly flammable substance, you know, right next to them all the time. But we, we don't think about that because it's a part of our, our daily life. And hydrogen is actually very much the same. So A, it is the lightest of the elements, the most simple version. It's just one proton and one electron. It was the first element, we think, at the dawn of the universe because all other elements are more complicated. It's the most pervasive element in the universe. And when you set it up for energy purposes, it's actually super clean being converted both into its raw potential source as hydrogen and then being used as a fuel. And this is commonly heard that uh, you can use it as a fuel and the only byproduct is water. And so there's this tension between hydrogen as this potential, also this idea that it's clean and this idea that it's dangerous. And that's exactly where this project lands. I wanted to bring hydrogen as that raw, dangerous potential so close to the body, which fits with core dance, but is also to your point, like it hits the senses, right? It's visceral. If the sun is just a giant ball of hydrogen that's already providing all of the, the energy that made its way to the planet Earth in the first place, like even fossil fuels are because of life that came before and the life was made possible by the sun. There is something so clean and elegant about tapping right into that raw material and thinking about that in a hopeful context. Oh, wow. The film is accompanied not by a soundtrack, per se, but I, I was hoping you would talk about conceiving the sound for the film. Sure. So most of the film is shot with time altered slow motion, for example. And slow motion and sound are funny because slow motion sound sounds really slow, but it doesn't really sound like life. So I knew that I had to kind of disconnect the audioscape from, from the real-time soundscape. There's a sound floor through most of the, the film. And then in particular moments, such as with the river or in moments where there's a flame that's catching, we, we bring in small moments of, of audio. Hmm. So the film is being projected on the front windows of Core Dance, and it's interesting to me that the work of the dancers inside may be visible behind your own art. 
do you feel there could be visual relationship between the imagery of liberation energy and the live dance in studio? Oh, I love that idea. Uh, and it had not occurred to me exactly, but it feels very comfortable. Hmm. That's wonderful to hear rather than, oh my goodness, this, this should <laughs> not be. I, I can understand that. Yeah. And, and certain people that make have a very white box approach to how they want the work to be seen and understood. I'll tell you, I'm a big fan of bringing the arts into everyday life. I think especially in America, it just could happen so much more and still not be enough. So if we have dancers and we have an independent short film and they're being seen at the same time, that's amazing. Artist and filmmaker Michael Eckblad. Liberation Energy is screening at Core Dance Studio through December 31st. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, acclaimed artist Genevieve Gagnard tells us about the digital art installation on Marietta Street. Look at them, look at us. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Next time you walk or ride along Marietta Street Northwest, you'll see a new large-scale digital exhibition lighting up Atlanta's art district. Look at them, look at us. A digital billboard presented by Orange Barrel Media in partnership with the renowned artist Genevieve Gagnard. The permanent digital installation rotates Genevieve's photographs along with those created by eight Atlanta-based artists. Genevieve Gagnard joins me now via Zoom with Pete Scantland, founder and CEO of Orange Barrel Media and an Atlanta artist featured in the exhibition, photographer Natrice Miller. Welcome to City Lights. So great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Pete, first off, where is the Atlanta Arts and Entertainment District? The Atlanta Arts and Entertainment District is what people think of as the historic downtown of Atlanta. And that's roughly south of the 85 connector to Martin Luther King Boulevard west from Centennial Olympic Park, and then east over to about West Peachtree Street. And the Atlanta Arts and Entertainment District is home not only to the densest concentration of offices, uh, sporting events, cultural facilities, but also is a program that launched two years ago that creates a unique public-private funding model to create funds to develop and display public art. Would you talk about the collaboration between 
Orange Barrel Media, Genevieve, and the local artists? Absolutely. So I've been a tremendous fan of Genevieve Gagnard for years. And when we started working on this site, which is really prominent at the corner of Cone and Marietta Street, we thought of Genevieve's work, Look at Them, Look at Us, which is a work that I've admired for a while and thought it was a perfect opportunity to make this at this really prominent location on a parking garage that had had actually been voted one of the ugliest parking garages in Atlanta and turn it into something that's not only beautiful, but something that causes people to stop, think a little bit deeper and engage with the artists that are on display now. One of the really, I think, tremendous things about this project, and this says so much about Genevieve, is when we started talking to her, she said, I don't see this as an opportunity only for my own work, but as an opportunity that I can help other artists by displaying their work. And so Genevieve immediately set about thinking about how to use this as an opportunity to showcase other artists' work as well. Very generous. Genevieve, we last spoke in January about your This Is America exhibition at the Atlanta Contemporary. And in our discussion, you said, it's almost like my work doubles as a mirror to the viewer to kind of check in with themselves and their stance on things. How does this digital exhibition serve as a mirror to those who will pass by and view it? Yeah, I think it will allow viewers to kind of ask the question, who's them, who is us, and kind of sit with that. The original scaled neon that I presented was actually in that show, This Is America. Some of the local folks that came to that show were able to see that and interact with it. So I, I love that this is, the message can kind of linger with, with folks for a longer time. Yeah, Pete mentioned your 2020 series, Look at Them, Look at Us. How have you adapted the images for the large-scale digital exhibition? For the large-scale exhibition, I liked this series of portraits that I had done where I'm kind of playing with the gaze. The characters seem to be looking at each other while one is actually looking out into the viewer's eyes or into the into the world there. So it kind of lends the viewer to think about what that statement, look at them, look at us, really kind of implies. Now, you are a Los Angeles and Massachusetts-based artist. Why do you think Atlanta is a good fit for this show? I mean, I don't know if it is a good fit. I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've read you've said some nice things about our city. No, no, no. Well, you know, I mean, to say it's a good fit, I think I, I make work for a large audience. So the further out my message can go, my work can be seen, then it's a great fit, you know? So I'm just thankful to Pete and Orange Barrel Media 
for collaborating with me on this project that's taken about three or so years to come to fruition. And, you know, most of this happening digitally through email and Zoom, and then to finally see it in person, it's kind of, it still kind of takes my breath away to see it in person. Genevieve, there are eight Atlanta-based artists whose works are featured in this exhibition. How were they selected? Yeah, so when we decided, you know, it would make more sense to present the platform for local Atlanta-based artists to be highlighted on this billboard, Karen Cormelo was reached out to to be part of this experience. Me not knowing a ton of artists from the area made it easier for me to like lean into Karen's guidance on, you know, her knowledge of the local artists as she's been interacting with them for years. Karen and I both suggested artists, her kind of being more the lead in that introducing me to some of the artists, I had a chance to kind of look up her suggestions and really view the images. The conversation I believe was more, you know, what do you feel would, as the artist would go well with this statement? Look at them, look at us. So you have all of these kind of beautiful portraits with some collage moments. It feels like a really community rich um, display of the people from Atlanta. Who are these artists? So we have Chip Moody. We have Jalen Knowles. We have Ken West. We have Davion Alston. We have Natrice Miller, who we'll be chatting with in a moment. We have C. Rose Smith, as well as A.D. Kaya Clark and... Artemis Jenkins. Natrice, please tell us about your photograph, Homecoming. Homecoming is a part of a larger series where I'm documenting the hairstyles of little Black girls when I'm out and about. It started a few years ago at a family reunion where I saw one of my little cousins and she had the little baubles in her hair and it kind of took me back to my own childhood and I took a photo and from there, every time I would see a little girl when I was out and about, I would ask the parent if I could take a photo of her hairstyle and it just grew from there. It's kind of a nostalgia thing because that's how my hair looked as a little girl, just like the photo on homecoming. That was like the length of my hair and everything. So it's just a way to document these hairstyles, kind of an archival type of thing, but in the same breath, just using the camera to kind of uplift these little girls in that moment. Every time I tell them I light their hair, they always smile and they're really excited to take a photo. So just with this particular series, I've learned that with photography is not always about the final image. Sometimes it's the process and, you know, the journey of the image and what you can do with the camera. Beautiful. I I was hoping you might share some of the responses the little girls have given you. Smiles are always welcome. Yeah, they smile, they pose, and they're just very patient. And then some of them put their hands on their hips, even though I'm (laughs) focused on the hair. So 
just really cool just in that moment just to see their reaction and someone telling them that their hair is pretty in a society where they don't always hear that. Mm. You recently had a film called The Rhapsody that's spelled W-R-A-P-S-O-D-Y. That film was on view at the Atlanta Contemporary. And that, too, tells a story about the beauty and hair journeys of Black women. What has been the impact of these projects on attitudes about your own hair and how you present yourself? Hair has just always been a part of my life. Uh, My grandmother was a beautician. She owned her own beauty shop in Coconut Grove in Miami. Uh, My mother gave me a lot of freedom growing up with trying all types of different styles. So for me, it was really just an extension of my own life and just the lives of other Black women that I know. These are our inner lives. This is what we live. This is what we go through. So it really just felt like me releasing ideas out of my head. It felt really natural to do that. And I know sometimes people talk about hair a lot, but I want to talk about it again (laughs) in a different way (laughs) and just kind of give a different narrative, a different perspective with this film, go a little experimental with it. So that really good response to it, men and women have liked it. A lot of men connected with it from saying they remember seeing their sisters, you know, get their hair washed or seeing their mothers do these certain things or their girlfriends or wives. So I've had a pretty good response from the work. So it's interesting. The men responded observing it as a ritual, but not necessarily thinking about their own hair. Right. I mean, I had a couple that said they did connect in it that way because Black men have their own, they have their own rituals to believe me when it comes to their hair or haircuts or locks. But I think that is how most of the Black men that talked to me and men, some white men told me they had Black friends that they grew up with and they remember doing these things or helping them take their braids out and everything. So everybody kind of had their own experience. And I think that's why they connected. So you mentioned the narrative you wanted to present with the Rhapsody film. What are your hopes for young Black girls and Black women and men with the narrative you present in your artwork? Just to number one, like enjoy something that they can connect to, you know, something about our shared experiences, but also, especially for younger people to know you can do whatever you want to being your authentic Black self, whether you have braids or locks or braids down to your knees, which I wore for quite a few years you can still do amazing things and accomplish your goals. So just just be you. Don't worry about what society says. It's not always easy, but just do you. Artist Genevieve Gagnard, Orange Barrel Media's Pete Scantland, and Atlanta-based photographer Natrice Miller. Look at them, look at us. 
is on view on the north facade of the parking garage at 79 Marietta Street Northwest, downtown. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. WABE's H. Johnson has been with our station since 1978 as host of both blues classics and jazz classics. H educates and entertains WABE listeners every Friday and Saturday night. He recently added City Lights music contributor to his impressive resume and joins us every other Friday to share some of his encyclopedic knowledge of jazz. This is H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. You know, Lois, for personal reasons, I like to showcase people who come from New Jersey. People like Sarah Vaughan out of uh, Newark, New Jersey. Count Basie out of Red Bank, New Jersey. Goes on, Bill Evans comes from Jersey. Frank Sinatra. Danny DeVito, he's not a musician, is he? Well, he's from Jersey, so is Bruce Springsteen. Anyhow, I said all that to say this. There's another gentleman from Atlantic City, New Jersey, the very famous gambling city. His name is Samuel. Are you familiar with Samuel? Samuel Most. They call him Sam. Sam Most. He plays flute, clarinet, alto sax, and piano. Now, with that in mind, let's get on with it about Sam Most. He's a great flautist. Played all those instruments I just told you about, but he was a great flautist. Several recordings that were very, very instrumental in perpetuating the jazz tradition on the flute. And he's played with everyone in the uh, jazz world when it comes to uh, performing with artists and, and jam sessions and so forth. Matt Matthews, Teddy Wilson. Yeah, he played with Teddy Wilson. Jackie Cooper. Mm-hmm. Also did some work with Bethlehem Label with uh, Herbie Mann, Joe Farrell. Oh, man. Sam Mose left an impact on the jazz musicians and a little impact on the jazz world, too. Samuel Mose, a.k.a. Sam Mose. And I'll tell you what we'll do right now. We'll share with you something by him that's absolutely flawlessly beautiful. And as you listen to this, I want you to listen to Sam when he solos on it. And after the bass player takes his solo, see, Sam will play the melody first and improvise a little on it. Piano player will take a solo and then the bass player solos. And after the bass player takes a solo, I want you to listen to the way, be prepared for the way Sam comes back in on flute, growling like a madman. I mean, but it's all earthy and gritty and gutsy. And it's a mellow tune called, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, real mellow tune called Hushabye. W-A-B-E's H. Johnson, and our series, H. Johnson's Jazz Moment, 
Today, he featured multi-instrumentalist Sam Most. You can hear the full-length version of Hushabye on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Catch H's Blues Classic Show tonight and every Friday beginning at 10, and do return for Jazz Classics every Saturday night beginning at 8, right here on 90.1 WABE. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., the artist Erin Nicole Henry will tell us about her new solo exhibition at Cat Eye Creative. Plus, we'll hear about the recent book, TCM Underground, 50 must-see films from the world of classic cult and late-night cinema. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with the authors of the children's book Hanukkah Veronica, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.